Welcome to Reputation Town. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Reputation Town podcast. This is Warren Weeks and I'm joined in real life by John Paranak. This is our first one we've done in person at the same table. I'm super excited. It's crazy. It's like real life. (laughs) Good to see you. This will be like, we'll be able to do this with the Apple things for (laughs) $4,000. It'll be just like you're here. So what's new in your world? Anything interesting that's happened work-wise, life-wise, anything you're reading, weird experience you've had? I'm starting to believe in climate change. I think actually, I think the climate is changing. I don't know if you've heard this. This is a bit of a bit of a theme. Uh, I don't know. It's just like, where's the summer? I want summer. I want warmness. Well, it was 45 degrees like a couple weeks ago. But it should stay that way. Are you talking about the fires? Or what is it? Like, what's making you believe? I, I don't know. I just think it, it, it just, you know, it is, there's something to this whole extreme weather thing. And then I sound like an old guy when you, when you think, like, back in the day when I was a kid, there was all kinds of snow in the winter. And I don't know. Man. But uh, what's going on with you? I got bitten by a tick a couple weeks oh, ago. Oh, not good. Yeah. Yes. My condolences. Thanks. I, uh, we went, we rode in Nova Scotia and went for this beautiful walk out in this trail and um, a disturbingly long time later, I found a tick kind of embedded. This is a super gross story. And I kind of ripped it out. I did all the stuff we're not supposed to do. I still have it. I have it in a plastic bag. I wanted to get revenge on it. Anyway, public service announcement, folks. Watch for t- You can't feel them on your skin. It's crazy. Like, wow. they're, they, they're these creepy looking little bugs. And I don't know how they do it, but you literally cannot feel them walking around. I got tested. I don't have Lyme disease. Oh, that's good. So That's not a good thing. All right. That's so, not a good thing. Um, and I just finished Bono's book. Oh, I saw you post something about that. Yeah. You liked it's it. Really, I, like, I don't really like you too. Like, I like them, but I'm not a huge fan. I've never seen them in concert. Uh, John has a cat on his lap right now. But uh, it, it to me, I... You could read the, the 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 physical paper book or the audio book. The audio book to me set a new standard for audiobooks. It's so good. And what what why do you say that? <clears throat> His he uh, first of all, it's written beautifully. You know, the guy's an artist. It's it's a it's a beautifully like the, his descriptions are really really cool without being cheesy and over the top. And um, it's his voice. He does voice acting. And so all ah. the people that he meets, he'll talk about Bill Clinton and Nelson Mandela, and he'll actually do their voice, and he kind of does the impersonations of them. And then between every chapter, he does an original version of one of their songs, and he sings it. And it's like just it's, it's a really good book. It's uh, about 20, cool. 20 hours, so it's kind of a commitment. Very cool, very cool. <laughs> John's just jettisoning a cat off his lap. All right, so it's been a couple weeks since we've done one of these. A lot of stuff going on in the news. Uh, We have a nice little uh, docket here today. We wanted to start off, though, with the Bell Media layoffs. They, just the other day, fired 1,300 people, a lot of uh, journalists shutting down a bunch of radio stations. We've talked about this organization a number of times on this show. Uh, What's your takeaway from this? Uh, Obviously, people don't like the telecom companies. Anytime you bring them up, people are like, uh... What's the takeaway here? Well, I guess it for communicators, it kind of means that the trend continues. Smaller newsrooms, fewer newsrooms, you know, you're probably going to have journalists who don't have as much experience as, as, as other ones. Like you might have had in the past because they tend to keep laying off the older, uh, more experienced journalists and replacing them with younger ones. So I think it's a bit more of the same. It's also, um, it says something about, you know, government when they allow companies to take over these media outlets um all kinds of promises are made and then of course they never i never kept i remember when post media bought the toronto sun they promised that they would keep separate newsrooms Mm. that lasted all of you know 
cup of coffee. So who's the loser here? Obviously, the people who lost their jobs, but journalism as a whole, and journalism doesn't have a great reputation these days, especially thanks to folks like Donald Trump, you know, lamestream media, enemy of the people, but they do, in a democracy, play such an important role. Uh, can you put into words what you think this does for the average Canadian taxpayer in terms of information about what the government's doing, what these organizations are doing? Like, every time one of these announcements happens, that credibility goes down, doesn't it? it I think so. And then I think the real impact is um, local news and the ability, the ability to communicate locally gets, it shrinks, right? Because those newsrooms are smaller. They're going to be more concentrated on sort of sharing a smaller number of stories out more broadly uh, to, to the fewer, fewer outlets they have. And so as a, as a consumer of information, you're going to have, less opportunity to to get local news and and if you're a communicator you have you have to look at other other ways you know more direct or or you know paid ways of getting your message across so do you see anything replacing this like is it going to be the you know the one or two person podcast or someone starts up a local kind of micro news site I know that there are, in a lot of communities, they have these, um, like, Village Media. Have you heard of this company? Mm-hmm. They have these sites. Like, they have one in Sault Ste. Marie. They have one in Guelph because the Guelph Mercury is no longer around. But um, they fill uh, they fill a role, but I don't think it's the same level. Maybe they're getting there, but it doesn't seem to me. Like, you can go send them a news release, and they'll just copy and paste. Publishing, it. So yeah. that's not, you know, you're not getting the same. It's better than nothing. But what replaces this down the road? Or does this just keep continuing to d- deteriorate? I think, I think there will be those startup opportunities locally that will happen but news will look different it's not going to be like we like we uh, like we experienced it you know 20 and 30 years ago it'll be like you described it'll be you know different ways of delivering information smaller outlets um, because as as bell retreats like it does create opportunities mm. feel bad for the individuals who lost those jobs and you wonder like even in the past like five years ago 10 years ago you'd think oh they got another job at another place like there are no other places there's not a lot of places to go yeah and then you think of what ai is doing to like i read an article the other day and it's funny it was about someone posted something about the 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 impact that ai is having on crisis communications from like a positive standpoint and i i you know bookmarked the article to read later and i read read through it and i'm a hundred percent sure that article is written by ai (laughs) it just has that feel you know self-promotion it just (laughs) its own pr department but it like there was a byline on it, but I have no doubt it was done at least ninety percent by by AI, and I'm not saying that's good or bad, but you like I don't know about you, but you can kind of t- tell you can tell when you read it. It's yeah, it's it's good and it's detailed, but it's kind of got that vanilla kind of robotic kind of approach. Yeah, and uh, yeah. so and there were on the other end of the spectrum, there's a whole lot of journalism programs shutting down. I don't know if you've heard about this, but all these college and university journalism courses are like just they're shutting down because no one wants to go into them anymore. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But uh, as someone who I've always loved that part of the world and telling those stories, I feel I feel very bummed out about it. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, interestingly, when you think about and maybe this is it will change continually, but interestingly, when when some when you get a story in the newspaper or on TV, it still has that sort of impact that oh, it's that, that that's something. You mean like for one of your clients? Or yeah, something? or yeah. just you know oh, yeah. from a company. If you like, yeah. you get your get get your company uh, coverage. Like th- there is an impact that the the news media delivers that 
no one else can quite the same. But I wonder if I wonder over time if if that does change even still. And then I think, and this is sort of a selfish thought, but as a media trainer, every time the media takes a a hit like this, what you're doing becomes less relevant. Like, mm. who are you training and what are you training them for? You know what I mean? So it's, uh, you know, I'm at an age now where I'll probably be able to, like, ride out the rest of this. But if I were in my early 30s or late 20s, I don't know if this is a line of work I'd even be getting into. Yeah, that's a good point. I'd become a TikToker, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you sent one over about a government minister who, uh, this is related to the Paul Bernardo case that's been going on in the media. Do you want to kind of set this one up? Sure, and we're probably at that stage in life when people may not even know who Paul Bernardo is. Hopefully, but, you know, good for you if you don't. Yeah, uh, yeah. so he, he was convicted of murdering two teenage girls, gosh, what, 30 years ago? Three, because her sister also. Three, that's right, yeah. correct, sorry. And, and so he's been in jail ever since, and so he was uh, moved to a different lower security facility of some sort. Like the most notorious scumbag in Canada, basically. Yeah. If you had to pick enemy number one, that's yeah. Paul Bernardo. And and from a, just from a um, cultural standpoint, like when that was going on, it was gripping pervasively in the news, not only in Ontario, but I think across yeah. Canada. Yeah. And internationally too. Like it was it was a really broadly covered story. Anyway, so the, the clip that we're going to play, I think, is uh, the minister who's responsible for this stuff um, uh, doing a news conference or what, 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 the, what the journalist thought was going to be a news conference uh, on the subject of uh, Bernardo moving. And his name is uh, Marco Mendicino? Mendicino, yeah. Okay. This is, uh, I think, a very good and thorough summation of, of, of the actions that we've taken today. And I'll be happy to take it, more questions. How is it? How is it credible that all of the most senior Sorry. staff who are paid for by taxpayers and government and the PCO and the Prime Minister's office and your office knew, but somehow you and the Prime Minister were only told after the fact? How is that in any way credible to the average person who goes to their job and does their job every day? Okay, first of all, uh, let's all take a breath. Uh, and I want to be responsive to your questions. What I said was is that I would be coming down to take more questions uh, in this afternoon. But you said what I would say, and then you didn't cut your office. We waited I, for yeah. five hours what for you. That's right now. What I, well, I'm here right now, and I will be here again, absolutely, uh, But I agree with you that there uh, is a challenge there, which is why we have taken steps to address that. And that's the clip. All so. right. So, so the question I have for you, Warren, is like, why did you advise the minister to run away from? <laughs> <laughs> the journalist like that. Well, first of all, I famously don't work with politicians, <laughs> so I had nothing to do with this guy. So No, no, seriously though. So you're doing a news conference. Yeah. You know, oftentimes there are tough subjects you're dealing with. Um is it ever a good idea to just decide to to cut and run when it comes to standing in front of journalists? Well, obviously not, right? Um I actually, watching that clip, I had a couple different thoughts. Uh, you know, some of them are, the, going back to our earlier conversation about journalism, when they all started kind of chasing him and asking them those questions, I'm like, good, where's this been? I'd like to see more of this, especially with politicians, journalists kind of going after them, asking tough questions. The uh, the second thought I had is it sounded like a bunch of seagulls <laughs> <laughs> taking off after him, just from an audio standpoint. The story to me as a, as a communicator, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, it, it, it's not about the moment. It's about everything that led up to it. Why are we in this moment, right? It doesn't start out this contentious. And 
it, the reason that it got up to this point is because, first of all, people feel like they've been lied to about who knew what, when. They were going to move him. They didn't move him. Did the prime minister know? Did this guy know? And the story's kind of changing. And anytime you have that, people are a little bit suspicious. I think uh, politicians are not the most trusted folks in the world uh, in general. And so at the beginning of, a, of an interaction with the media, typically they're going to be civil. Hey, can you tell us what's going on? Can you give us a bit of an update? And then I understand in this situation, they had to wait quite, uh, quite like they said, they're waiting for him for five hours. And then it just, he's not answering the question. And uh, I actually kind of like the way he handled it. Let's take a breath and take it. Like he, he, he didn't panic, but they're on, they're not getting what, what they need. Like ultimately the journalists are there to serve the audience. They're also there to serve their editors, their producers. And if they don't get what they're looking for with the story, then you have this negative feedback loop where he gets more freaked out, they get more aggressive, he starts running away. And that's why we're talking about it today, right? If he had handled this properly four days ago and answered the goddamn question, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be talking about this. Yeah, and then on top of that, like he's, what he's delivered is a visual that didn't exist before that extends the story that much further. Yeah. And it would have been much better to just stand it and deliver, yeah. answer some tough questions, and, you know, it, to your point, people just don't have their act together behind the scenes. Whatever happened that he says he wasn't informed of this happening or the prime minister wasn't informed of this happening. There's obviously some like breakdown and process. But, you know, in any crisis or any situation like this, we are trying to to get control of something. The first step is to deal with the operational part of it and nail down like yeah. what went wrong and how are we going to fix it? And then we communicate it. And the one, the thing that's kind of maddening is in politics, no one ever wants to take responsibility for anything or blame for anything because the opposition will start hammering you with yeah. it. And so you get these situations where they try and tap dance around it instead of dealing with the issue head on. Like most like aside from situations where there's sort of legal liability in place, most companies would, I'm like, would, who are good at this would not take that approach. Yeah. They would deal with the issue and then communicate about it. And you, you have to wonder when the decision's made, right? They made the decision to take Paul Bernardo and put him in a less secure facility. Why is there not someone in the room to say, hey, guys, is this maybe not a great idea? Because they do this in a vacuum, and it reminds me a little bit, a whole different story, but it reminds me of the Lisa Laflamme story last summer where... They terminate this, uh, the anchor from the news. She's been working there for 35 years. She tucks in people at the nighttime news, millions of people every single night. And they make this decision to unceremoniously can her. Like, why does no one in the room say, hey, guys, maybe, like, can you not see the chessboard seven moves down the road? What's going to happen? And so if they just would have handled this a little bit better at the beginning. But, like, to me, running away is is not the the problem. It's the it's the result of the problem. And the problem had been brewing and brewing and brewing. But, but you're right. And it also reminds me, I don't know if you've seen the guy with, with the tr um, chemical spill in 2014, Gary Southern, who's, like, slugging out of the water bottle. Oh, yeah. I use this in all my training sessions. And people just die laughing at it. And then at the end of it, he just runs away. And then it just the reporter's like, hey, 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 we're not done. And he comes back and he looks all sheepish. And it's just the worst possible look. So, uh, not to get the crystal ball out, but is this guy going to have a job in a month? That's an interesting question. Like in the old days, he'd be gone. He'd have to resign. But now politics is, is different. And, you know, people tend to, this is maybe a bit of the Trump experience where you just sort of, you let, you know, let it out. You, you just stick, stick through it and 
you know, people forget and they move on to other things. I'm going to go out. That was a very good media training answer, by the way. See what he did there, folks. He didn't actually answer it, but he gave you kind of like he answered the question behind the question. I'm going to say he's gone in a month. But I have no idea. But um, I, I, hopefully, right? Like you'd like to see some sort of accountability. And maybe the fact that these people can get away with these things and these missteps is maybe it goes back to the original story about there's less journalists, less pressure. Mm-hmm. If you can ride it out for a day and a half, something else is going to happen. You know, some Bud Light or some other story will, will take, take its place. Okay, we're moving along to golf. I've had a bunch of people hit us up on Twitter. I hope you guys talk about this. The Live, Golf, PGA, that whole story. I'm not. A, I've golfed twice in my life. I'm terrible at it. How are you? Are you a golfer? Very, very poor, poor golfer. Yeah. You know their buddy Dennis got to play in the pro am. I saw that. And they won it. <clears throat> I saw that. That was Isn't amazing. That cool. And so yeah, the only time I ever played, we were on. Um, well, there's four of you, right? They put you in. What's that one? They it's like best ball. So oh yeah. yeah. So basically, yeah. like I could have been like just uh, you know a cabbage patch kid sitting there. <laughs> like I was like shanking them off into the woods. And uh, but Dennis carried our team. We ended up winning that night too. Okay, so do you want to set up the the live one? And we're talking specifically about Jay Monahan, the head of the PGA, and the whole reference to nine eleven and all that. Do you sure, want to talk yeah. about that. So I guess what a year or two ago that uh, the um, the Saudis backed a rival league to the PGA, and they um, drew away a number of golfers, basically just. Like dumping bags of money in front of them, like big name golfers, also. Yeah, and uh, and so they had a competing tour. And at, at when this was launched, the the head of the PGA that you mentioned, he was, you know, quite critical of the of the live tournament, and you know, sort of waved around um, September 11th and the Saudi connection to it, you know, and even I think his line was, "Well, you'll never have to apologize for for playing in the PGA," you know. So uh, lo and behold. And there, and frankly, there were a lot of players who openly criticized the ones who decided to um, to join Live and just basically. Well, didn't they, take they the offered paycheck. Tiger Woods like almost a billion dollars? Did they? Oh, okay. Yeah, and he said no. So, at any rate, it surprised everyone, including golfers in the PGA, who weren't told about it ahead of time. Apparently, the PGA and Live have effectively agreed to merge and create like a new entity um, with the Saudis involved, and and that is been quite a shock now the the thing that sort of led me to zero in on this was the sort of um dizzying pivot that the the head of pga took after um, a couple of years ago talking about how this is these are really awful people and september 11th and now there are business partners <laughs> and what do you think the difference was just the size of the bag of money yeah exactly i like the way you said it the number of zeros <laughs> i think that was before we started so there's a quote from from Jay Monahan, and he's taken a lot of heat. I don't know if you saw. You know who Dave Portnoy is, the guy from yeah, yeah. Barstool. He, I'm not even going to play it here because it's pretty pretty offensive. But he goes on a rant about a two or three minute rant about how much of a scumbag and a terrible person. And the the reason is not because of the the hypocritical. It was the, it was the September 11th thing, invoking the people related to September 11th, and then basically just flushing that down the toilet. Mm-hmm. So here's a quote from Jay Monahan. I recognize everything that I've said in the past and my prior positions. I recognize that people are going to call me a hypocrite. Anytime I said anything, I said it with the information that I had at the moment, and I said it based on someone that's trying to compete for the PGA Tour and our players. I accept those criticisms, but circumstances do change. I think that in looking at the big picture and looking at it this way, that's what got us to this point. 
does that pass the smell test for you? Well, I don't think it does for anybody. Like if he basically becomes a disposable like uh, executive now, like what what use is he? He has no credibility. Get the bone saws. Yeah, <laughs> he has no credibility. He has no. Oh my god! You know, standing that he like I don't know like going forward. Um, uh, but the thing is, like, even if you changed him, the the entity itself is just inherently tainted by yeah by uh, by what they were criticizing before. So now let's talk from a reputational standpoint. And I, you know, I made the bone saw kind of joke and reference in September 11th, the hijackers and everything else. But like, why why are the Saudis trying to do this? Why are they trying to get themselves involved with this sport? And it, isn't it really a reputational play, trying to like lift the reputation of their country? Completely. And I think they're, they're trying to financially, they're trying to diversify into things that are not oil. That's like a major strategic goal of uh, of the kingdom. Because oil is not going to last forever. Uh, and, you know, as people more increasingly turn to EVs and things, it's, you know, you have to, I have to get away from that, but I think you're right. This is a this is a uh, a charm offensive, so to speak. What precedent does this also set for other sports? Like they basically they went in and bought the PGA. So why could they not do this with hockey, baseball, football, basketball? Why, if they have unlimited amounts of money, hasn't the in that they referenced this on the All In podcast last week? They said. And I think they were kind of joking about it, but so why don't we start a, a rival league to the NBA and then they'll just buy us out? Yeah. Isn't this, it, it seems like, um, it's kind of disappointing. Oh, it, it completely is. And what I find interesting is it, it, I wonder what sponsors will do mm. because like they're, they won't walk away, but there'll be, be a lot of hard questions asked. Doesn't everyone just follow the money? Maybe. I don't know. It's That's probably what will happen. We should have a golfer on here. We should have Dennis on here to break this down because uh, we're looking at it from a reputational standpoint and marketing. I'd love to hear from a hardcore golfer what it means to them and what they're thinking of this guy because uh, and he's another individual. Like you, you said, he basically becomes this this puppet or this useless individual. Is he is he there a year from now or is he is he out? I think he's probably gone. But uh, you know, this is this is like one of those cascading things. It's like the, the story isn't done today. This is going to continue because it's going to have some ripple effects for mm-hmm. sure. Okay, so that brings us up to uh, Elizabeth Gilbert. Now, many of you may uh, know this woman. She's an author. I think she's from the United States. She wrote that book, Eat, Pray, Love. Became a movie with Julia Roberts. I've not read the book. I've not seen the movie. Not really interested. My understanding, if I had to break it down at gunpoint, is some lady was cheating on her husband and traipsing around the world and wrote a book about it and became super famous and rich. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's my that's my take on it. Anyway, she has apparently, and I have heard nothing about this lady since the Julia Roberts movie, but again, I'm not a fan. But the other day, I saw someone tweet something about her that she had written a book that, um, that was... That was um, set in Siberia last century and then she has basically self-canceled she canceled herself and took her book out of its launch and I'd like to play for you the video it's one minute 43 seconds and then we'll kind of break it down because I'd love to know your thoughts about why she's doing this this is a really unique thing to do and the 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 reason she's kind of bringing up Ukraine war and all that so here's this quick video and uh the visual is part of this too. So I encourage you, like if you have if you have Twitter or whatever, go look it up because she has these big 
what color are those? Like big orange glasses. And yeah. I would bet money there's no glass, there's no lenses in the frame. So I don't know what she's doing with that. Maybe it's just an affectation, but it's just kind of weird. So anyway, here's the video. Hi, everybody. It's Liz, and I have an announcement to make. So last week, I announced the um, upcoming publication of my most recent novel, a book called The Snow Forest, that was set in the middle of Siberia in the middle of the last century and told the story of a group of individuals who made a decision to remove themselves from society, to resist the Soviet government, and to try to defend nature against industrialization. But over the course of this weekend, I have received an enormous, massive outpouring of reactions and responses from my Ukrainian readers, expressing anger, sorrow, disappointment, and pain about the fact that I would choose to release a book into the world right now, any book, no matter what the subject of it is, that is set in Russia. And I want to say that I have heard these messages and read these messages, and I respect them. And as a result, I'm making a course correction, and I'm removing the book from its publication schedule. It is not the time for this book to be published. And um, I do not want to add any harm to a group of people who have already experienced and who are all continuing to experience grievous and extreme harm. Um, so that is the choice that I have made. And I've got other book projects that I'm working on and I've made a decision to turn my attention to working on those now. So I just wanted to let everybody know that and thank you very much. All right, what do you think of that? Weird and unnecessary. You know, I, I'm super skeptical about her motiva motivations, our motives. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, she's, she got some blowback. And rather than sort of wait to, to, to potentially snowball into something, mm. she um, pulls the plug, not on the book, but just on when it's going to launch. I can't remember the word she used specifically, but she talked about, you know, the timing of it or release it from the publishing, publishing schedule. Ultimately it'll be re released at some point and it'll have this wave of additional public relations oomph behind it now because of what she did. It's tricky because you, all we can say, like, I don't know this individual, don't know her actual motives, but based on just your, what you watch it and every person is going to make their own judgment but like my my spider sense is going off like crazy with this like this seems to me this seems like just cloaking yourself in the ukraine war and like i'm ukrainian i don't give a shit about her book like she's not hurting my feelings it's fictitious first of all it's made up it's a hundred years ago and it's set in siberia like this is has nothing to do with the war the players the politics uh, we would not be talking about this woman if she hadn't done this. So this seems to me, it, it's it's less of a cancellation and more of a soft launch of her book. Yeah, like, hey, everybody, hey, everybody, have this book coming. Like, maybe I'm getting old. Maybe I feel a little bit, um, I don't know, cynical or skeptical, but like that's the vibe that I get from this. And I'm looking at some of the comments, and not that the comment section is the best place to be, but some people are saying, this is great, thank you very much. Other people are like, I thought you were an artist. Like, you know, what are you, what are you doing? So ultimately this is, a, this is a person, when I first heard Elizabeth Gilbert, I thought it was a person from Little House on the Prairie, but I guess it's <laughs> Melissa, <laughs> Melissa Gilbert. So, and again, I'm not her target audience, but this just seems to me sort of like the Jay Monahan 
um, draping yourself in the flag of something else and doing it for uh, personal financial reasons. That's good. That's a good point. And now that is can be risky. Do you think? Um, do you think that's a calculated decision with her and the publisher, or, or if you're faced with that situation and you start getting blowback, it seems to. If like, I was writing a book, yeah. Uh, first of all, I wouldn't go through a publisher. I would self-publish a book. I think anyone who writes a book today, if you go through a publisher, you're stupid because you, you're going to lose. So they, they take 90% of the money, 95%. So like David Goggins, are you familiar with this guy? No. Oh, not. my God. We got to talk about like David Goggins is crazy. He's this um, Navy SEAL, super like you can do it kind of guy from the States. But he's written, he wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me. And he has a very interesting life. He does these 200-mile races every week. He's like a really hardcore guy, motivational and everything else. But um, I think he sold, the last figure I heard is 3 million copies of this book on his own. He shopped it around to a bunch of places. They said they didn't want it, sold it himself. So if you have a good book and you hustle, people will buy it. So I think that model, that model's dead. Like that whole middle, middleman, like the Speaker's Bureau. I think Speaker's Bureaus, I can't wait until Speaker's Bureaus go out of business. Anyone who, it's just, they take 25% of your cash and they don't really do much. I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent here, but to me, um, if I was in that spot and I'd written this book, I would like let it out into the world. Let people read it. Let them be the judge. But I guarantee you she's going to sell more books because of this. Oh, for sure. And so that ultimately, again, goes back to the skeptical reason why. So I think, I think I'm getting myself in trouble with the Ellen crowd right now. But uh, so the last story that we wanted to, actually we have kind of like a 1A and 1B, but the one we wanted to chat about, you brought this up, was related to Navigator and uh, former Governor General David Johnston, who's, you know, Sault Ste. Marie boy, so I got to like be a bit of a fan. Do you want to kind of set the story up? And it, it basically talks about crisis management, who should you take, how should that be portrayed in the media? So the background here was... It, it it was leaked from uh, the Canadian intelligence service that there was evidence that the Chinese government may have been interfering with um, Canadian elections and, and, and trying to target even the individuals in parliament um, uh, who they thought weren't, weren't friendly. And long story short, the government was pressured into appointing David Johnston to have a look and see if there was any, any validity to this information the way it was set up there was not not a lot of uh, confidence from the opposition and from different quarters that this was actually going to be a, a, an objective look at the problem or that what was perceived as a problem and it came out later that david johnson had hired a couple different crisis firms um to support his work and so i guess the question that, that you know it raised was you know if you're if you're um if you're in a in a situation, and this is a government, but it could be a, easily be a company too, where they're in a t- tough situation, and you're hiring a crisis firm, you know what what role do, do they play? Like, should they be like a visible part of your team, or should they be sort of a behind the scenes part of your team? Mm-hmm. Like Warren, you're closer to to journalists than I am. Um, I don't know about that, but um, well, I just think you know, you went to school, got your master's in journalism, and <laughs> <laughs> you worked as a journalist, yeah, and you know. I guess. Um, journalists in your family, like, what 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 do you think is the appropriate role that a firm a firm should play when they're helping a company? Um, there's going to be differing opinions on this, since it's our podcast. I guess we can give we can give ours. Um, 
when I worked for my first public relations firm, you know, how and company back in the late nineties, uh, it was a really cool employment experience. A lot of really good people learned the business, how everything works. You had to show up in a suit every day, You'd be handling like kind of, it felt like important clients and doing work you were kind of proud of. And we had, um, you know, based on your billable hours every year, they would have you some, some kind of bonus at the end of the year based on your work and the, you know, what you've done for the company and all these intangibles and stuff. But there was this this rule, and I don't know even know if it was real, but they had said if you ever end up in the story, if you're in the photograph, if we, if the firm becomes part of the story, you lose half your bonus. And I don't know if it was actually real, and no one had ever kind of tested it out because I don't think anyone ever got, I think Lambie got his back of his head in one of a shot sometimes, so they couldn't prove it was him. But the... The goal was like, to me, that feels, that kind of approach feels like it's in the best interest of the client. Like they're having a crisis. Anyone who's been in a crisis situation knows how just devastating, it's all encompassing, your heart is pounding, you're in fight or flight mode. You wanna have someone in your corner who's gonna help make it go away and help maintain your reputation afterwards. And I can't even count the number of times I've heard stories where Navigator ends up being in the news story. And I think of Michael Bryant when he hit the bike courier. And I again, this is just my recollection from many years ago, but there were people from Navigator handing out flyers, basically. If you need more information, call us at Navigator. And the Hockey Canada story, Navigator became a huge part of that. And that was a debacle. They spent like $1.6 million. And you know, I think they could have got better crisis management advice from a, from a turtle. And because it just didn't didn't go well at all, or maybe you know maybe they got great advice and ignored it. I don't know, but the result was not great. And so, does that serve your company well? Um, and here we have this story where he hires Navigator, then he fires them, and then the Gian Gomeshi one where that he had hired them, and then they fired him because he hadn't disclosed all the information. We shouldn't know who your crisis management firm is. And so, I think in in a lot of ways that there's such a there's such a large company. I don't know if you've gone through their website recently, but like. Every like four or five years, I'll pop on there and take a look and the number of people and the number of offices. And so it's a great business model because they're they're basically holding your amygdala hostage, right? You're in fight or flight mode and they're saying if you for when you can't afford to lose, I think that's their tagline, which is it's, again, it's genius. And people are they're 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 willing to bet that the more I pay, the better it will be. And they must be the best. And I would argue that if, if they were to call up, you know, some of the people who've been on this podcast, Grant Ainsley, Molly McPherson, yourself, myself, um, Shauna Bruce, um, any one of the folks who have been around for, you know, 20, 30 years, know the ins and outs, you're going to be paying a fraction, a tiny fraction of the bill from one of those large firms. And you're going to be getting advice that's as good, maybe better. I don't know. And so uh, anytime I... I see their name pop up. I'm like, that's weird because it seems to me, and I'll stop my rant in a second. It seems to me that if you as the crisis management firm become part of the story, you're not really looking out for the best interest of your current client. You're looking for your, your next client. You're kind of marketing for yourself and you're using that person's crisis. The worst time in their professional and personal life, you're using that as a marketing opportunity. I think that's not very nice. Well said. You know, and, and we, we, like personally, I t tend to subscribe to the same ethos that you said that you had a hound company back when you started this idea that I want to help shape the envir environment around the story or shape the story, but I don't want to ever be in it because, because I think it just from, um, I was, I was trying to imagine 
what would what would my mom think or like if some someone just you know a person who's not in yeah. a profession in the profession reading it what would they think and inevitably if it says oh you had to hire all these experts to help fix the problem then it makes Ooh, it seem like a bigger problem bad, yeah. yeah anything else on that one uh, i think you hit the ball of the park there ah sorry i didn't mean to take up all the all the navigator juice I'm sure they're nice people. You know, uh, Jamie Watt was one of the instructors at my journalism school. Like, oh, I don't really? know if anything, I didn't take that course, but... Um, I, I, I only, I know of... I've seen him on, very on the national, firm, on the yeah. panels and stuff like that. I have nothing negative to say. I just think as an approach, I think it doesn't... If I'm the client, I'm like, hey guys, can you kind of keep your head down a little bit? Yeah. Um, the, the last one I wanted to mention, it's not even really a story. It's just a, something I've been watching over the last couple of weeks with fascination is the uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, and he's thrown his hat in the ring for the uh, presidential election next year. The stuff that's going on with Donald Trump is kind of bananas as, as well. But so Robert F. Kennedy, as soon as I heard that name, I'll ask you, because we kind of were chatting about this before we hit record. When I bring up the name Robert Kennedy Jr., what do you think? What's his reputation in, in one or two lines? Uh, he was a well-respected environmental lawyer or environmentalist who sort of went to crazy town by becoming an anti-vaxxer. Yeah. That's, that's basically his, and that's, you know, I mentioned that to someone and that's what I would hear as well. And so you just dismiss him outright. You go like, okay, guys, crazy anti-vax tinfoil hat conspiracy. That's what the other thing you hear, conspiracy theorist. And so, um, I have to admit that over the last couple of weeks, I've been seeing him popping up on Twitter every now and then. And I'm, I've, um, I recently read this, uh, well, audiobook again, this 22 hour book. I'm not actually recommending it. It's, there's so much detail. Unless you're a super history buff, it's called JFK and the Unspeakable. And I think it's, a, I think the guy's name is James Douglas who wrote it. But it goes into excruciating detail about everything related to the JFK assassination and the CIA and who was involved and all these different elements. And it's like factually based, but just so intense. I'm glad I finished it. But so I was in that kind of Kennedy uh, mindset. And so I start seeing him popping up on all these different podcasts and like, and like big ones, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in audiences. And he's been basically shut out by the Democrats don't seem to, to want to be interested in him. They want Biden and that's their only candidate. They want, they want him doing any debates or anything because he has like full blown dementia. Uh, if you've seen him on TV, but, but it's interesting. Kennedy has a couple of things going for him. First of all, the name, the legacy Camelot, all of that. And that last name has a lot of sway as we've seen in Canada. Like if Justin Trudeau was Justin Johnson, he wouldn't be the prime minister right now. And so, and then I actually sat down and cause I like to think of myself as taking in information from all the whole spectrum and then kind of making up my mind. I don't have a party affiliation. I don't like I voted all over the spectrum. I don't belong to a party. I like to think of myself as I make up my mind on issues as they come in. And as a media trainer, I try to be apolitical in general. And so I'm watching this guy in these, in these interviews. And the first one I saw was the all in podcast. He did like a two or two and a half hour um, interview with them. And I have to say, I was like very surprised. I was taken aback. I was expecting Looney Town, and I I heard like a rational, measured, articulate, funny, charismatic guy. And like his voice is a little wonky. I don't know if anyone who's heard like he's got a. Have you? Do you know what his voice sounds like? No. It's very sort of gravelly, and it's, he's, he has to kind of force his words out. And uh, my understanding is it's from a vaccine injury. He oh. had a vaccination, and that affected his voice, and there's some certain thing that takes place. So, But after you listen to him for a couple of minutes, it kind of goes away. But so articulate. 
but he said a lot of things that I think are going to be attractive to those people in the middle who are they're not they're not at way out on the right they're not way out on the left but they're in that big chunk of people in the middle who just for the most part don't don't they're not on TikTok they're not they're you know, holding up flags they're just kind of living their life and he's saying a lot of rational things he's very anti-war he is anti um, you know uh, the big pharma companies but not for the reasons that that you necessarily might think but what i find interesting is what he's doing in terms of this grassroots podcast effort like the guy has this this like he's working like a horse on all these different shows flying around the country talking to these audiences and putting the stuff out online and the last i heard he um he was polling at like 20 percent compared to Biden. so they said if the election were to be held today he would beat biden and trump and desantis all those individuals hmm. so you know who knows uh and maybe i'm just maybe again maybe i'm drinking the kool-aid but i i challenge anyone and I asked, I talked to my sister and, you know, she's Globe and Mail health writer, very pro vaccine. And she just outright dismissed him. I said, I'll pay you a hundred dollars if you watch this podcast with me. And she's like, oh my God, she can't. But because people, they don't, they're not interested, right? I've made up my mind. This is what it is. And I kind of have an investment in this. This is kind of part of my personality. This is what I think. But um, I'll like, I'll pay you a hundred dollars if you want to sit and watch it afterwards <laughs> to me. But like what he's doing is because if you can't, if you, if the New York times is not going to cover you, if CNN is not going to cover you, what do you do? And to me, he's doing it and it's successful. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast yesterday, 11 million people. Well, and I think this, if we could tie back to some of the stuff we were talking about before about layoffs and media, like as media shrink the number of stories they tell, like that, there's still people who want to tell stories. And so they're going to look for other avenues and there's going to be other like podcasts and other homegrown you know information distribution channels emerge and people increasingly use those channels because you can target your audience very very accurately with them yeah and so i think this is symptomatic of the whole evolution of the way media is changing and um this is why i think you know journalists when i when i go back to that clip we watched them like all upset that the the minister wasn't staying to answer their questions it's like well maybe maybe you have to think differently about how you are going to have to do your job into the future because, you know, doing it the same way you, that you've done it may not be sustainable, probably isn't sustainable. So, but, um, but to your point, like Kennedy in this case is really taking advantage of the fact that he doesn't need, doesn't have a gatekeeper that he has to worry about. He can just go directly to the audience through these, um, through these podcasts. And often those platforms are looking for different voices Right or the other voices that are the more mainstream voices don't want to go onto them because they think, yeah. oh, I can't, couldn't possibly lower myself to go uh, on that podcast, despite the fact there's you know a million people listening to it or whatever yeah. the case may be. I sent a request. I went to his website and I sent a request for him to be on my podcast, my <laughs> other, but the interview one. Like I have no, I have no expectation that he's going to say yes. Like I wouldn't even if I were him, I'd say no. But um, never know. no harm in asking. And this exactly. will be my only shot, and it would be interesting to talk to the guy and ask him some ask him some questions. So I, they, his team sent me a note, said fill out this form, but like I'm not I'm not very optimistic. Oh, well done. But if he does, like that would be you know why <laughs> why would he talk to an obscure Canadian podcaster? Interesting. But like I'm going to go out on on a limb and say, and I tweeted something about this recently. JFK was the first president to win using television as a main tool in the debates with Nixon because Nixon is uh, hadn't shaved and looked like. Death. No makeup, but yeah. Obama was the first one to use social media as a whole and reaching out to people, email campaigns, and gathering individuals. Donald Trump, for better or worse, was the first to use Twitter as a weapon to become the president. And I'm going to say that the next president is going to be a podcast president. Bold prediction. 
well, we could be playing this and laughing at me a year from now, but we'll <laughs> see. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap it up? No, that was great. All right, folks, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, we'll hope to do this again in person. We should do a nighttime one with, uh, with beverages. Uh, good be idea. Fun. Yeah. And no hockey content this time, too. So eh. Give it a few months. All right, thanks, folks. Have a great weekend. See ya. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.